morning. Good morning. Good morning. And good morning. Good good morning. Uh, so this morning I'm going to talk about uh, four American poets. Uh, I'm not including people like Gary Snyder, who's a well-known Zen poet. Instead, I'm talking about uh, Walt Whitman, whom I've talked about before, uh, T.S. Eliot, a little on Bob Dylan, and a little bit on Mary Oliver. She was supposed to be featured in the program, but I see she got left out. You know, women tend to get left out still, in case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> um, so, uh, of course, we could do a chorus on each of these four, and I have done a chorus on Whitman, but I'd like to also to do a chorus on Mary Oliver and Bob Dylan and T.S. Eliot. So I'll spend about eight or nine minutes on each one. <clears throat> oh, and I'm going to need, oh, I can see, I can see the clock. That's good. Thank you. Um, so starting with Walt Whitman, Walt, Walt Whitman um, uh, uh, wrote his uh, Leaves of Grass, his biggest piece before the Civil War. And um, uh, it's a beautiful piece. It's a beautiful piece which did not sell much uh, before the Civil War, but now he's considered the father of American poetry. He has been for the last, I think, I would say 40, 50 years. Um, <clears throat> Leaves of Grass uh, uh, is is long, long poem that has many different parts to it. The interconnectedness of humanity, nature, all life, everything, everything. And in Song of Myself Within Leaves of Grass, <clears throat> here he is. I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. <laughs> Why in Buddhism, the foundation of Zen, every atom which belongs to me, as good belongs to you. And he's singing to himself, he's singing himself. And he's a gay man in 1840, and he's singing himself. He's singing himself. Beautiful, beautiful. Do I contradict myself? Yes, I contradict myself. <laughs> so, Aristotle's law of non-contradiction becomes the basis for Western philosophy and Western thought. But Whitman <laughs> sounds like Nagarjuna. <laughs> Do I contradict myself? Yes, I contradict myself. Both and, instead of either or, both and. Do I contradict myself? Yes, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So, I've talked about this a lot. Holding with kind awareness and curiosity the parts of ourselves that are private, that, that are kind of hidden, but they're still here. Holding them, opening up to them, instead of just running over them over and over how bad they are 
They're not bad. They're part of who we are. There are memories. There are the projections from our memories, and then they come up. I'm large. I contain multitude. Big mind. Big self. <laughs> the transcendentalist Whitman was a transcendentalist. Called this the Oversoul, the Buddha nature. <laughs> Each rejected aspect we just let come in in our meditation. Some things we don't want to see, we just let them come in. Just open, open to them, non-judgmentally. Sometimes they're kind of deplorable. Yikes! But we just just let them come in. We just let them come in. And we can feel some contentment when we do that. It's not. Some more, uh, more open contentment, more ease of contentment, which is ease, which is not this narrow contentment, it ease. So here he says, I exist as I am, that is enough. If no other in the world be aware, I sit content. And if each and all be aware, I sit content. <laughs> heart mind, the heart mind of the universe. So he doesn't, he's, he's saying, I don't need to be validated by you guys to feel good about myself. I'm good. I'm good because I'm supported by this still open, thriving Buddha nature, soul. He calls it soul. That soul is fine. He says, the soul and the oversoul, the more we just settle into the soul the more we feel the oversoul. I say the more we sit into our still nature, the more we feel big nature, which is the nature of the universe just within us, just within us. Divine I am inside and out, and I make holy whatever I touch or am touched from. I believe in you, my soul. The other I am not abase myself. The other I am the other I am must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Self-love, self-compassion. Don't kick yourself out. Don't even kick that wounded part out. Oh, open up to that wounded part. Open up with that wounded part. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, as we read this, or as I read this, um, I have this image of him hanging out in the grass with his soul <laughs> and opening up to the oversoul. Again, these are transcendentalist words that he and Ralph Waldo Emerson and uh, Henry Thoreau used. Coming from, they had no, they didn't know about Zen, but they knew about Indian non-duality because they'd read the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, and the Upanishads. Very interesting. Very interesting. Hanging out in the grass, trying to get his soul to speak, but the soul speaks only in music, beyond the limitations of words or meaning. Hmm. Sounds like a like Zen, doesn't it? The soul speaks only in music, beyond the limitations, the constraints of words or meaning. 
something bigger, something wonderful, <laughs> symphony of life that's always playing, that we're overlooking. But except when we spill it, then we're not overlooking it. <laughs> Here he is. The sniff of green leaves and dry leaves and of the shore and dark-colored sea rocks and of hay in the barn, the sound of the belch words of my voice loosed to the eddies of the wind. A child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. <laughs> and yet, a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. Huayan, Zen. Huayan is the philosophical foundation for Zen. So no hierarchy in this, in this interconnectedness. No hierarchy. <laughs> well, we create a hierarchy, we need hierarchy, but, it, but it's fabricated. <laughs> it's fabricated. Every element, every moment possesses this, just this, Vibrancy, even if you're suffering, right there, right there is this vibrancy, vibrant aliveness. And uh, many times I've quoted my teacher, my first Zen teacher, who said, to appreciate your life is as rare as dirt on your fingernail. <laughs> Whitman would have liked this. <laughs> my teacher would have liked my teacher's expression. <laughs> my teacher knew nothing about Whitman. <laughs> but, but, the beauty, the wonder of just dirt on your fingernail. <laughs> so once when I was having a hard time at the Zen monastery that I lived in when I was a young man, and I was working outside at a dark, dark morning, and he was lifting rocks, um, and I was just struggling. I wanted just to get out of that, that dank, deep, dark valley where we where we lived, and uh, uh, um, he just held, he had, the night before he had talked about the third on the fingernail, and he did a, a, a Zen thing, he held up his fingernail. He saw that I was in a grumpy mood, he, hung, he held up his fingernail. And I couldn't help laughing, you know? <laughs> so I felt better. You know, when we laugh, we feel better. <laughs> he says, I accept reality and dare not question it. Materialism first and last imbuing. So I said to my teacher, uh, uh, he said, my teacher said to me, well, what does your father think about you dropping out of college and moving up to Zen Center? And I said, he's materialistic. And my teacher said, materialism is good. <laughs> this materialism is good. Dirt on the fingernail is good. <laughs> That's Whitman. T.S. Eliot, Thomas Stearns Eliot, started writing poetry in the 1920s. In the 1920s, he was in despair, so he wrote uh, very uh, profoundly dualistic poetry in which he pointed out the fragmentation that we all feel, cut-offness that we all feel, at times in our lives, at times in the lives in which he was really feeling. And then, in the 1930s, he went through a transformation, total transformation. 
Um, but I'm going to start with the 20s. Uh, the disintegration of, of life after World War I and the loss of traditional values. Really, really men have made the, him feel fragmented and cut off and isolated and not part of anything. <clears throat> we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leading together headpiece filled with straw, alas, our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act falls the shadow. Fractured, fractured. We feel cut off so often. We have an idea. Oh, I want to sit more. Oh, and I want, when I sit more, I want to be light. Tim is always talking, but I'm heavy. And that the more we get caught on the ideal, on the idea, the more, the more we feel cut off from others and our deepest self. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. So then, in the late 1920s, um, uh, Thomas Stearns Elliott, who had moved to the UK by that time, I think, um, uh, became an Anglican Christian and really immersed himself in Anglican Christianity and read St. John of the Cross, non-dualistic, non-dual, wonderful non-dualistic uh, writer and liver. How can you write about it if you don't live it? And uh, Julian of Norwich. And, and, and he had in college also studied Sanskrit and studied the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and uh, the Vedas. So, so anyway, he has this conversion and he reads these, these, uh, these Christian saints. And then he writes his, what would you say, his opus uh, in, um, starting in the late 1930s and finishing in the early 40s. Four, four quartets. <clears throat> I'll read a little bit of it. Just a, I'm just reading from one little part of one part of it. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor toward, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor toward, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point. There would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there have, I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time. We can all do this. These guys didn't even have a meditation practice, I don't think. He must have had a deep prayer practice, he must have. 
It's a point and it's a dance. There's a stillness in here, but as long as you think, I want that stillness, you're missing its vitality. It's a dance. It's your own dance. Time present and time past are both perhaps present to time future, and time future contained in time fast, past. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Like Dogen. He'd never heard of Dogen. <laughs> I'm sure he'd never heard of Dogen. of zazen, meditation, objectless awareness, that's the portal, that's the door to the joy of, of this wonderful seeing, this wonderful seeing, the point, which is the dance, the dance, which is the point. And then we really appreciate the dirt on our fingernails, <laughs> and even our even our, our best friends, dirt. It doesn't mean we don't clean the fingernails. Of course we do. We like cleaning fingernails, but we appreciate the dirt as we're cleaning. <laughs> Being springs from the depths of which the day knows nothing. Music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all but you are the music. Sounds like Whitman. Unexpectedly, suddenly, the music moves into our being. When we let go of judging, when we let go of thought, when we, the thoughts still come, but we just let go of trying to control it. Thoughts come, but that's part of the dance. That's part of the dance. Music hurts so deeply that it is not hurt at all, but you are the music. So I've told this story, let's see, what time is it? Oh, it's a little, I'm okay. Is that 10.21 or 10.27? 10.21. Oh, okay. So I can tell the story. <laughs> um, so uh, I've told this story before, probably eight times over the last 30 years, but you know. <laughs> So uh, I was in San Francisco uh, where I learned to meditate and I lived right across the street from the Zen Center <clears throat> as a young man. And this was on a street, the, the one-way street that goes downtown to downtown San Francisco. And it's called Bush Street. And, and it's a busy street in the morning. So we would have our first sitting at 5.50 and it would be nice and still. By 6.30, it was rumbling and rocking and rolling with cars and traffic and honking, and it was very irritating. That was the beginning of the second sitting. Very irritating. But I had just been uh, reading John Cage, and, and I'm not going to talk about John Cage this morning. I've been reading about his contemporary compositions of music. And so uh, I had a, a little kind of epiphany. I thought, well, the, 
what's not music? And I just began opening up and listening to the cars and listening to the honking. And after that, every day after that, for the rest of the time I was living up there, uh, when 6.30 came, it was fine. It was still before 6.30, then it was still after 6.30, only it was dancing still. You know what I mean? It was dancing still. I was trying to get something. I was trying to be, get some calmness. But the calmness is here. It's always here. And I need a John Cage to remind me of that. I see Monica on screen. Monica, I told this story 20 years ago. <laughs> she disappeared. <laughs> Telling this story 20 years ago? Mm -hmm, she does. <laughs> so, uh, so the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. We can stop choosing, knowing, and judging over a direct experience. This is all this is about, direct experience. We can know and judge and not know and judge our judging. That's fine, we do that. But direct experience is more powerful, more alive, more deeply joyful than that, even if it's suffering. Even if it's suffering. Dogen calls this actional understanding, but I won't talk about that because I want to talk about these other two people. <laughs> Bob Dylan. Uh, um, Lawrence has heard me talk about, I'm surprised Lawrence even came this morning because <laughs> he could give my talk about Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, Bob Dylan. Uh, uh, a lot of a lot of Bob Dylan is as dark like Eliot's first phase, dark, cut off, separate, isolated, lonely, uh, fractured, love and loss and love and loss and love and loss. But this is the human situation. We can't transcend this. We can open up to it and not be victimized by it, but there's no point in transcending it because it's fake. <laughs> it's fake. But anyway, here he is in his despondent phase with one of his most famous little phrases. <clears throat> How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home? Like a complete unknown. Like a rolling stone. Isolation. No sense of belonging, adrift, cut off. We were, um, he's my age, two or three years older than me. We were cut off from the dominant culture. We couldn't stand the dominant culture. We, we had each other, but it wasn't much. It wasn't much. We had no community. So Buddha himself, supposedly, according to the myth, was part of a community when he was in his palace. And he, he had a huge community, but then he left 
and he did that solitary practice for six years. And according to the math, he worked with many different teachers and different yogas and different philosophical approaches to, to settling into this deep stillness. And then uh, he gave it all up because it wasn't deeply satisfying. So supposedly he went through a period of real loneliness when he was just sitting, just sitting, real loneliness, real sense of cut-offness, which is kind of almost inevitable if you're on a spiritual quest, that you feel that. On the one hand, we're together with all life. On the other hand, uh, I'm within my skin until I die, and, and you're within your skin. So both, both. But, Dylan says, may your hands always be busy, may your feet always be swift, may you have a strong foundation where the winds of change shift. So everything's changing, but we can have a strong foundation in our, in our meditation practice. That can be our strong foundation. And we can feel it. We can feel it. <clears throat> And supposedly Buddha had a strong foundation, you know, he would, he's the archetypal figure, right? He'd been sitting for six years, <laughs> so he could deal with this loneliness. He could deal with this loneliness, because he had this strong foundation of his sitting practice. And supposedly at some point, Buddha uh, went from his deep loneliness to when the morning star pierced his heart to crying out, only I, alone and sacred. All, alone with the morning star, alone with all the stars, along with the grasses, <laughs> along with the dirty fingernails. <laughs> that deep aloneness, which includes everyone and everything, that deep aloneness. So the, the phrase I used, usually like to talk about when I talk about Dylan is from love minus zero, no limit. My love, she speaks like silence without ideals or violence. She doesn't have to say she's faithful, yet she's true like ice, like fire. She doesn't have to say she's faithful, yet she's true like ice, like fire. As soon as we're think we have to say we're faithful, we're not really faithful. Faith is, faith is a wonderful commitment beyond the idea that I should be committed. It's a commitment in which we feel like we're joining what we're committed to, the person, the object, the being. So we don't have to say, I'm faithful, that's extra. That's extra, that's... You can do that if you want, but in a way you spoil your original faith by even saying it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <clears throat> My love, she speaks softly, she knows there's no success like failure, and failure, no success at all. Speaking like silence, from the space underlying and surrounding our thinking, regardless of how fast our thinking is going regardless of how stirred, disturbed we think our thinking is. It's not disturbed, it's just thinking. 
<laughs> it's just, it doesn't know it's disturbed. It doesn't know it's even bipolar. It's just cruising along. <laughs> we want it to behave. <laughs> behave. I've been sitting here for 40 minutes this morning. My thinking should be behaving by now. She speaks like silence, without ideals or violence. She knows there's no success like failure, and failure's no success at all. The still point, which is a dance. The dance, which is a still point. Without ideals or violence, we get caught on the ideal, and then we get violent. Look at all the wonderful religions that have ended up killing as many people as possible because of their ideal. Yikes! Yikes! And the third, uh, third ancestor said, do not seek after the truth, only cease to ch cherish opinions. He didn't say seek to have opinions, we all have opinions, but the moment we cling to one opinion, and kick all the others out, we're courting some internal violence, which will manifest itself externally. It just happens. It just happens. It doesn't mean that I don't think my opinion's better than you guys. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I know it's not better. It's just my opinion, my conditioning, my meditation. She knows there's no success like failure. Allow yourself to fail. Move beyond your edge. Take a risk. Do something you really want to do. Even if you're a little scared, you'll, you'll move beyond your fear. You move through your fear. And failure is no success at all. You'll never achieve a success any more meaningful than failure but itself, it doesn't mean anything either. You, you think, oh, I need to fail more. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, it's good, Tim said fail, so. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> yeah, There is no success at all. But we can practice failing completely, giving ourselves completely to whatever we're doing, wherever we are, and see what happens. Okay, it's only 10.33, so I've got Time for, probably right now, this morning, she's my favorite of the four. Yesterday, Whitman was my favorite. And of course, in the 60s, Dylan was definitely my favorite. <laughs> I don't know why she is. I think it's because she got left off the program. <laughs> so, oh, she only died, Mary Oliver, about uh, two years ago. And I had, um, I had requested that I used her, a couple of her quotes, in my second book or my first book, and I got turned down. So now I'm working on my first book. I think maybe now that she's dead, I'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> dead, alive, alive, dead. Everything's dying, and we're coming to life as we die. We all are. In a different kind of way. In a different kind of way.
Mary Oliver. The beauty and its significance of nature, nature, almost all of her poetry is about the natural world. And she, and she writes about it with precision and grace. She sees the grace in sparrows and ladybugs in beautiful fall colors. She writes about them just musically. Any good poet is also a good musician. Well, maybe there are exceptions. These four poets are also very good musicians. <clears throat> That's why the poetry is meant to be read out loud, recited, repeated. <clears throat> so she's very spiritual, but she's not, doesn't seem to have any religious doctrine. She really, she and the third ancestor must be best buddies. Not cherishing any opinion about what, about anything. At least in her poetry, I can't say about her daily life. <laughs> so one of, the, one of her most famous phrases, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. <laughs> You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Release the burden of perfection and good versus bad. Kind to yourselves, kind, not self-punishment. Rejecting the need to prove yourself through extreme efforts. That need is based on your forgetting your intrinsic goodness, your intrinsic goodness, your Buddha nature, your soul, intrinsic, not extrinsic, intrinsic, intrinsic, innermost, innermost. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. <laughs> I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to the amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms, Embrace, embracing wonder and awe with open arms and just beginner's mind. Beginner's mind. Seeing a sparrow bathing. I've been talking lately about sparrows bathing because we have a, on our deck right behind our kitchen, we have a bird bath that my, my wife Linda has been cultivating. And we have lots and lots of sparrows. Lots and lots of sparrows. <coughs> And so I had eye surgery four weeks ago, roughly four weeks ago, three, four weeks ago. The reason I keep my glasses on is so that you won't see the bulges under my eyes, because I'm vain, 80-year-old vanity. <laughs> you think vanity goes away just because you sit a lot and you get old? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Part of your intrinsic worth. <laughs> well, you don't overdo it, right? 
and as long as you can joke about it. <laughs> anyway, I came home from my eye surgery and I sat in the kitchen and everything was pretty blurry. <laughs> pretty blurry. And I looked out the window, it's only about six, week, six feet from the <laughs> kitchen table, and I saw the blurriness of the sparrows bathing. And it was just delightful. And, and I focused them with more of a beginner's mind than I had before, when my eyes were clear, because when my eyes were clear, I was more discriminating different things and thinking about what I should be accomplishing. And, but with my eyes just blurry, I, it was like a beautiful kaleidoscope. The, the little baby squirrels going underwater and coming back up and, and flopping their wings, getting all fluffed up. The sparrows are actually waiting in line to be in our bird bath. You know, sparrows hang together. Usually eight or nine at one time, but more than that, and the others are waiting. So beautiful, beautiful. So, dualities, we just can let go of those dualities. We need them, but we can let go of them. They don't have to be uh, the be and an end all. The be all and end all. This is the be all and end all, just as it is. Dim vision or clear vision, just as it is. No vision, just as it is. Both the bride and the bridegroom, she says. The marriage of the relative and the absolute. The tiny sparrow is the whole universe. The whole universe is the dirt on my fingernail. <laughs> I cleaned my fingernails the other day. <laughs> I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it breaks open and never closes again to the rest of the world. So she writes that just after she's seen a loon with a broken wing, up close. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it breaks open and never closes again to the rest of the world. Oh, her heart cracks open to that woundedness, to that loon's flapping wing. She really feels that she suffers with it, and yet there's wonderful joy in that suffering. Wonderful joy, but, but that's in entering the suffering. That's not through going over or under it, that's through entering it, through entering it. You can open to the beauty of this, of this world right in the middle of all of this political turmoil, awful things happening in the Middle East, not to say, not to say, not to say, meaning all the other places. So I'll finish with a, with a long thing by her. I'll say a couple of things more and then see, then turn it over to you. <clears throat> This is just a long uh, part of a poem from her that I'm particularly fond of. This grasshopper I mean, 
the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't exactly know what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have done, been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So that's what I want to say about these poets, Zen masters, who are encouraging us just to move beyond our conventional notions of self and other, past and present, good and evil, and are deeply in love with the point which is the dance, which is the point which is the dance. So that's what I want to say this morning, and I'll be happy to entertain questions or comments from anyone. Let's see, let's start, I always like to start online because people, I don't know, they used to be more shy online, they're not anymore. But, <laughs> people online, questions or comments from 46 of you, who has a question or a comment? About anything. Or you can recite your favorite verse Hi there, Pardon? This is Dom. Uh, yes. Um, I can't see you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a video. Okay. All right. Um, I had just heard the phrase, no success. I was, I was wondering, wondering if you could relate that to your little light videos Oh. Did you hear what he said? He wants me to relate uh, Dylan's phrase, no success like failure, to my title of my book, Enlightenment is an Accident. <laughs> oh, deep. <laughs> Let's see. Go that deep. <laughs> well, completely fail in your meditation to open up to this wonderful spaciousness. But you, it can't be contrived failure. It can't be. You have to just move beyond the limitations of your conscious mind. There's no technique for that. Enlightenment is an accident. When we let go of trying to be anything else than who we are or what we are, and that's an accident because we're always trying to be someone else, something else. 
them, there's no success like failure, and failure is no success at all. And, and we're just moved by being alive, and even moved by dying, although we may hate it. <laughs> we're still moved. <clears throat> How is that, Dom? Excellent, thank you. You're very, very welcome. Uh, people in the room. Julian. Yeah, um, going along with that, um, I felt, I don't know, maybe when we talk about T.S. Eliot, but I felt when I was getting into uh, grad school, you know, interviewing, and they said uh, to a couple of professors who were having lunch, and says, well, the only thing that matters is what you teach yourself. You know? What, you teach yourself? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, and uh -huh. it really hit me, like, you know, yeah, when, when I'm in the Zen, you know, I'm meditating, it's, you know, there's all these pointers we get from taking all these classes and everything, but really when I teach myself something is when I, oh, something new. Something and what was the last thing you said? Something new. Something new. Yeah, completely novel, like not written in a book. Yes, yeah. yes, but yes, also yes. I mean, supposedly when Buddha, just before he died, everybody was gathering around saying, what are your last words? And he said, be a light to yourself. The lights, it, to paraphrase it more, that's all they said. He said, do not look to me, look to the Dharma, be a light to yourself. And that's our practice. But that means going into the darkness without a flashlight in your zazen, in your meditation. Well, you need a flashlight lots of times, but at some point the flashlight has to go off so you can find the lightness in the dark. And that's the accident. And we're always in our, in our meditation preparing ourselves for that accident and then giving up trying to get anything completely, which is the catch, the catch. Yeah? Just curious, Tim. Um, you were picking from all the poets that you could have picked from. What made you pick those four? And oh. maybe I just want to know what your favorite Bob Dylan song is. <laughs> maybe you just want me to say what about Bob Dylan? Maybe I just want to know what your favorite Bob Dylan song is. Oh, well, I already, I already, my, I already told you my, my favorite Bob Dylan song is from that, that album, yeah. Bringing It All Back Home. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's really everything in that album. Do you know that album? Yeah, I forgot. Uh, that's my favorite album, and Love Minus Zero, No Limit is my favorite song, the one I just... And here I was in San Francisco in the 60s, and it was... All I can remember now, I've gone been gone a long time, is fog, fog everywhere, fog, coming out of the Zen Center. Talk about non-duality, everything was just foggy. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, I would uh, go across the street and play Dylan, and then I would recite to myself this, uh, my love, she speaks like silence with no ideals like violence. She knows there's no success like failure, and failure is no success at all. So that became one of my mantras to help me with my sitting. Does that make sense, Julian? No, no. Um, other people either, oh yes, Pat. Um, thanks for your talk. Sure. And um, mine is more of a question. Uh, it's good to sit and talk about these old poets. Yes. <laughs> some are still here, some are not. Yes. I'm just curious if anyone knows of any current poets 
are any current musicians that are going down these same types of roads, speaking of their dissonance, and coming back to their openness. Um, because I'd be interested. I'd just purely be interested. Yes, well, they're still alive. Yeah. I know, uh, I quoted recently in a talk I gave John Berryman, who's just died. Well, Mary Oliver and John Berryman have both died within the last 10 years. See, they've all tipped over. Hmm? Uh, they've all tipped over. They're yeah, I know. I don't know anybody. Does anybody know anyone alive? Sure. Cloud Cult is a band from Duluth that's kind of going Party? through transition. Cloud, Cloud Cult is a band from Duluth that's going, undergoing some transition now because oh. two of the leaders have uh, divorced, but they they have a, a lot of very meaningful songs oh. that you can sing. One is, you're the only one in your way. Oh, is that right? Yes. Uh -huh. Say that again. You're the only one in your way. Say that a third time because anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're the only one in your way. There you go. <laughs> Anybody else have any contemporary poets? Anybody online have any contemporary yeah. poets? Oh. Hi, Tom. Who? Boy. Pardo. Spell her last name. H-A-R-O. Could you hear what how he spelled it? H-A-R-O. Enjoy her. Oh, okay. Okay. Do do you have a line from her you can quote? I do not. I do not. Oh. <laughs> I, have I have one, Tim. Oh, Mari. Hi, Hi I, I have a friend, Wendell Berry. Berry. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> do you have a line from him you can quote? No, no not at the top of my head. And of course, Gary Snyder. Thank you. Gary Snyder is still alive, too. I don't know if he's still writing poetry, but... We had him here at the Zen Center years ago. He, he did a whole poetry evening for us. When he was younger and I was young, younger. <laughs> Much younger. <laughs> Anybody else? Contemporary poets. Dave Lucas. Who? Dave Lucas. Dave Lucas. No, Who's Kate. Kate, 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 Kate. Kate Lucas, another woman. Kate Lucas. Kate Lucas. All right. Anybody? Thank you. Anybody else? Lawrence. Uh, I like what you said about uh, you know going through the, uh, the dark phase, uh, darkness, duality. Going through the what? Like duality, darkness, oh. despair. Uh -huh. uh, some, I think a lot of people that study, uh, like Zen or Indian philosophy, maybe they bypass some of that and try uh -huh. to go from like, you know, point A to C yes. or something. Yes. But I think it's very important to go through the despair. Yes. When yes. I was in college, I read T.S. Yes. And you, know, you never know when it's going to overcome you. You may, be, you may have been out of your size and it's been perfect for the last year, and then all of a sudden the fog of despair comes in. Boy, in the pandemic did I notice that with so many people I mentor. And, that's, and since we're non-dualistic, we don't kick out that. Why would we kick that out? We're, we're, we're bereft. 
we're bereft, we're uncomfortable, we're anxious. We can't kick that out, we can be with it, we can open up to it. And then we're not, not consumed by it because we just, it's just a part of our prayer to be with it, to be with it, to be with it. And we open up beyond the, it to the oversoul, if you want to call it that. But as soon as you say the oversoul, everybody wants the oversoul. <laughs> or big mind, everybody wants big mind. There's, Lawrence. There's a certain beauty to, there was always a certain beauty to reading. Like, certain what? A certain beauty, a, a beautiful expression of that kind of a spirit, like in reading the hollow man. Yes, right. right. That's right. 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 That's right. You're so right. So, so tell them the end of that Elliot poem that you mentioned the other day to me. Oh, okay. How does the world end? Tell them that one. This is the way the world ends. Yeah. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a Yes. Mm -hmm. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. He wrote that in the 20s when he was very despondent. As many people are, again today, very despondent. How is this world going to end? It looks like it's in some way, form, you know. Yeah. I have a record, a tape actually, of him reading some of his poems that I call him in. Oh, yeah? And his voice is very expressive. It sounds like he's dead. Very expressive what? He sounds like he's dead. Oh, Thank you. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you all. And uh, I'll turn it over to the door.